If you have never made a mistake, this message is not for you. Now, if you have made a mistake before, I would ask you, even if you're at home, sitting on your couch, listening on your phone, wherever you are, if you've made a mistake, just put up your hand. Now, keep that hand up, either physical or even within your heart. Keep that hand up if you've made a mistake this year. Now, although we're only two days into the month, keep your hand up if you've made a mistake in the month of December. Keep your hand up if you've made a mistake this week. And keep your hand up if you've made a mistake even yet today. I think we can all comfortably say that we are in good company. We make mistakes. As John Maxwell says, a man must be big enough to admit his mistakes, smart enough to profit from them, and strong enough to correct them. And in this chapter of Joshua, mistakes are made. There is an admit, there is an admittance, there's a confession of, of wrong. I don't know if I can say that there's a lot of profitability when it comes to the people. There's some, we'll get to that. And I think there is a lot of strength involved to correct what is going on. So I've kind of titled tonight's message, The Domino Effect of Sin. We're going to go through the entire chapter of Joshua 7. If you're using the Bibles that we've been handing out over the last couple of years, one of the older ones, the page number is 156. And one of the newer Bibles that we've been handing out, the page number is 198. And again, we're going to be going through the entire seventh chapter of Joshua. Now, like I have already said, Joshua has just fought and won the battle of Jericho. The walls came down, and the commander himself, Jesus Christ, shows up on the scene, and they have this amazing victory. How can you be anything but victorious when you have Jesus Christ on your side? We're actually going to start by reading the last verse of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 27 says this, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout all the country. The Lord was with Joshua. And this is the secret of victory in our lives. If he is with us, we will be victorious. Now, it says right there, the Lord was with Joshua. The question that I had at the beginning of this, is Joshua with the Lord? Certainly God was with Joshua and his fame went throughout all the land. But more importantly, where was Joshua's heart? And in this chapter, chapter 7, Joshua is going to be tested. He's going to understand where he's really at. So verse 1 of chapter 7. But, now that word but, remember it, circle it, underline it. We're going to come back to it. Verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now I'm going to say something a little funny, but I'm going to explain it. Where the buts of Scripture can be really good. Now when we see the word but, if you do inductive Bible study or in-depth study methods, you'll see that you have to look back. It's a contrast. You have to look back. So we have all of chapter 7 or chapter 6. We end with saying, the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread without. That's the ending kind of high note. And then in contrast, we have a but. Now, biblically, whenever we read but God, that's always an amazing thing. 
Because usually that's on the upswing. Something bad happens or something discouraging is happening, but God. Now, conversely, here, we, we don't have a but God, we have a but the children. Whenever it's a but man, it's never really a good thing. At the beginning of chapter 6, we have the Lord said. At the beginning of chapter 8, we will have the Lord said. And here at the beginning of chapter 7, we have but the children. It's a complete contrast to the chapters around it. And here we are going to have the failure of Achan brought before us to look at and to learn from tonight. In chapter 7, we will see the only military defeat in the entire campaign of Canaan under the, the, the leadership of Joshua. There are going to be 36 casualties. And these 36 casualties are the only casualties of war in the entire book of Joshua. So it does have a huge measure of importance. It's in heavy contrast to what's going on around it. We see the beginning of the battle of Jericho, and then in chapter 8 we'll see the beginning of, of really another battle. It'll be now the Lord, or the Lord said, the Lord was leading. But in this chapter, we have that, the big at the beginning, that, that, that word but, but the kids, but the children. And it says that they had, they had committed a trespass. Now we understand that word trespass because we understand when, it, when we see signs that say no trespassing. It's basically, think of it this way, a line has been drawn and it's saying don't cross that line. And when you cross that line, that's a trespass. You have gone somewhere that you shouldn't go. And in chapter 6 and in verse 18, Joshua commanded and told the nation that they should not take any of the accursed things or any of the things from Jericho. All the spoils of the war or all the spoils of the battle of Jericho, they belonged to the Lord. They were his. It was the first battle in the promised land. It was the first victory in the promised land. And the, the, the spoils of that war were to go to the Lord. Now the wars fought in Israel by Israel in Canaan, they were not there to bolster their, their treasuries, to give them personal gain, to go and plunder these cities. The wars that we are going to see throughout this entire book, they're being used as an instrument of God to bring judgment against a people, a prideful people, that really, in a sense, have, have had it coming for a while. So it's used as a tool, not as a, a, a place to gain and to grow resources. Israel could not be defeated by the Canaanites if, verse 27 of chapter 6, continued to be with them. The Lord was with Joshua. As long as that happened, they couldn't be defeated by the Canaanites. However, they could defeat themselves by alienating themselves from God's plan and from his power. So this entire chapter, it's in regards to a man named Achan. And Achan means troubler. Now, I don't know about you, but who would right out the gate name their kid the troubler? Maybe you start with a, a Bob or a rich, and then after a while you're like, oh, this kid's trouble, all right, now we'll call him Aiken. But no, right at the beginning, he is called the troubler. I think I could be one of those kids that could be called the troubler at the beginning. I would be, I would be told stories by my mom, and I'm blessed at the, the woman that she is and the love that she still has for me after the, the amounts of trouble that I've caused over the years. I remember one story that she would tell me I was, I think it's I was three, maybe four. We were living in California and we had the, a tree next to our house. You know, we had a, a kind of stereotypical ranch, California ranch house where it was a large flatter roof. And I would climb up the tree when I was three or four and I would run on top of that roof. And she would hear me running and coming out and there's her three or four year old son up on the roof and it wasn't a happy moment. So I, I caused trouble. I could be a troubler. 
And by God's grace, obviously, I'm not in trouble today, but I do have an understanding of what it means to be a young man that could cause trouble. So it's in regards to this man named Achan, and it's also in regards to these accursed things, these things that God said, don't touch their mind. Well, Achan touched them. We have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We're going to look as we get into the chapter that Achan first saw, and then he coveted, and then he took. And we have that, three, that threefold prong, that three-tipped spear that the enemy will use at times to try to drag us down and ensnare us. Now understand that nobody sins unto themselves. No one demonstrates and lives in rebellion and only affects their own life. It affects your friends. It affects your family. It affects other people. It'll affect your church. It'll affect your ministry. Not only does it affect other people, but it also infects other people. Sin has a way of ruining and messing up everything. Never underestimate the amount of damage one person can do outside of the will of God. In Genesis 12, we see that Abraham's disobedience in Egypt almost cost him his wife. David's disobedience in taking an unauthorized census led to the death of 70,000 people in 2 Samuel 24. And in the first chapter of the book of Jonah, we see that a refusal to obey God almost sank a ship. Hebrews 12.15 is a reminder that we need to hold on to today, that we must be diligent, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by this many, come, many become defiled. That root of bitterness, that could lead to so much sin, to so much trespassing. It starts within. It poisons the heart, it poisons the mind, and then it starts poisoning the relationships around you, and then all of a sudden, your bitterness has infected those around you and so many people around you. This is why Paul admonished the Corinthian believers to discipline the disobedient man in their church because his sin was defiling the whole church. One man's sin, whether it be internal or external, will have an impact and an effect on an entire body. Whether it's a disdain, a bitterness... A pride? Fill in the blank. We can look to the Gospels and we can look to the Epistles and we can start listing out sins. And if those sins are present in your life, in the church, you're going to start affecting the church. And so Paul tells the Corinthians, you've got to discipline those people. And sometimes discipline is a hard thing in the church because we want to say, no, 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 the church is a place of grace. The church is a place where we can be accepted, where we can love, where we can forgive. Yes, but the church is also a place that exemplifies who God is and who he's supposed to be. And we shouldn't, we can't allow a misrepresentation of our heavenly father happening through our lives. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 to 27 say this. That there should be no schism in the body. There shouldn't be any cracks, any separations, any fault lines. But the, that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually. One part of the body drastically affects the entire body. 
Years ago, this was actually, I was a, it was June 2011, I had brain surgery. And my hair's cut short, you can still see the scar going up the back of my head. I had brain surgery. They, they actually used a saw and they enlarged the opening of my skull. They removed a couple of my vertebrae. They cut into the, my spinal cord and put in a synthetic fiber to give more room. I, I had what was called, or what is called, the Chiari malformation. And what, what basically was happening was the, the lower part of my skull was separating and the, the, the lower lobe of my brain was actually starting to slip and kind of clog up or plug the cerebral spinal fluid from circulating properly, which, would gave, which gave me actually for about 10 years migraines and massive headaches almost 24-7. I lived with, with blurred vision, with double, triple vision. I was very sensitive to noise. And loud noise happened, and man, it would just trigger this massive migraine. Or if I got hit in the face with, some, with, with like headlights or something horrible headaches. And one, th one thing happening to my body had a dramatic effect on everything about me. And so in 2011, I had the surgery. And the hardest part about that surgery, I'll be honest, for six weeks after that surgery, I couldn't hold Titus. I couldn't hold my new son because the weight could, could hurt the, the incision, could actually rupture the incision. That was probably the hardest part was that for almost two months, I couldn't hold my boy. But one part of the body had, a, had an effect on so many other parts of the body. Not only did it affect me physically, but it affected my house. It affected my, my kids. It affected, you know, Lila at that point, she was two. It affected Nicole. She had to be aware and had to be a little bit more, you know, tender with, with me at times. It had an effect not just on me and my body, but also those around me. What we have here is a picture that means that we should all take ownership, we should all be speaking the truth in love. There is no way that any pastor of any church can know everything that's going on in the church. You can. You're the church. You are every joint and ligament that supplies. So you as the church should be speaking to one another the truth in love. If you see something that doesn't line up with the Word of God, say something in love. Now, speak the truth in love. What does that mean? Well, love without truth is hypocrisy. That's just puffing you up. Conversely, truth without love is brutality. We need to be lovingly truthful with one another because we all affect one another as a body of Christ, and we all impact and affect our example to the world outside of the church. So God made it clear that Israel had sinned and not just Achan alone. It said right there, that the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now, why would God bl blame the entire nation for the disobedience of one man? Well, Israel was one people in the Lord, not just an assorted collection of tribes and of houses and of clans and whatnot. God dwelt in the midst of their camp in the tabernacle, and this made the Jews the Lord's special people. God's people today, we are one body in Christ. And consequently, we belong to each other, we need each other, and we affect each other. And any weakness or infection in one part of the human body contributes to the weakness and infection of other parts. And it is ex exactly the same with the body of Christ. We're told in Ecclesiastes that one sinner destroys much good. One so we have the children of Israel, but the children of Israel, they committed a trespass, and the Lord's anger burned against them. Verses 2 and 3. 
Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside beth on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people, for the people of Ai are few. Now, this recommendation to send only a few thousand, it could either only be a response of faith or of self-confidence. In the end, it didn't matter. In their disobedience, they could have sent 100,000 men and it would have made no difference. Israel's success depended on their own state of being conquered by the Lord first. Achan's rebellion showed that in that respect, they were not being fully conquered by the Lord. And therefore, they were open to defeat. Joshua sent men without praying, not from Gilgal. He was going right on from Jericho, right up to Ai. He just has this major victory, this major battle that took place at Jericho. Things were going great. Ai is a much smaller town. Easy, not a problem. So let's just sweep the region and take Ai. But he didn't consult the Lord. He didn't seek the Lord first. He didn't go back to Gilgal and send men out of there like is the the pattern for the rest of the book. He is going right on from Jericho. Now Jericho, the name Jericho means a fragrant place. The name Ai means a heap of ruin. Bethaven means the house of vanity. And Bethel means the house of the Lord or the house of God. So somewhere between the house of vanity and the house of God you have a heap of ruins instead of a fragrant house. And I don't find that to be any coincidence in what we're looking at tonight. Somewhere between Bethaven and Bethel, the house of vanity and the house of God, you have Ai, a heap of ruin, as opposed to a Jericho, which was that fragrant place, that sweet-smelling aroma. They didn't do anything at Jericho. We are never more in danger than just after experiencing some kind of victory in the Lord. We can get this misconception that we have been empowered with some type of strength or supernatural ability. As soon as you experience a victory in the Lord, you need to understand that as soon as that victory happens, you are just as dependent on the Lord at that point as you were before the victory even took place. It is not because God imparted something to the Israelites. It's because he did something, not the men, him. Moses actually in Deuteronomy, you don't need to turn there, look it up, but I'll just say, Moses actually warned Israel that they couldn't defeat their enemies unless the nation was obedient to the Lord. If they were following the Lord by faith, one Jewish, Jewish soldier would chase a thousand, and two would put 10,000 to flight. And that's in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32. Three Jewish soldiers could have easily defeated the whole city of Ai if the nation had been pleasing to the Lord. But they didn't take that moment to seek the Lord first. Remember, we talked about this you know, a while ago as we started Joshua that the, the physical battles, they were the secondary events. The first battle or the primary event was, did they seek the Lord first? And if they sought the Lord, they would experience victory. But if they didn't, they would experience defeat. Verse 
So Joshua kind of, that domino effect started really, nobody knew it, but Achan took something from Jericho. Joshua didn't seek the Lord. Think about it. If he would have sought the Lord, God could have said, whoa, whoa, time out. you got to stop what's going on. There's sin in the camp. There's something going on here that you need to address before you can move on. But Achan sinned. He committed a trespass. Joshua didn't seek the Lord. So you have kind of that domino effect of sin happening that leads them to destruction and defeat. What Israel needed was more God confidence, not self-confidence. They didn't need to look at themselves and go, look what just happened at Jericho. Let's go get AI. They should have said, Lord, look what you did at Jericho. What do you want us to do next? And I think sometimes in the life that we're living, we can really, let's be very honest for a minute here. If we look at our, looked at our week, week in and week out, the Monday to Friday grind of work, if we were to be very honest with ourselves, I think we could look at that week and go, you know what? There are components of my week that I, I could just do. And I could just do, and if God's part of it, great, but if not, I, I could still do it. And that attitude, that understanding, that perspective is exactly what's going on here. I'm sure that majority of us, we can wake up Monday to Friday, and we can schedule ourselves from when we wake up to really after dinner. And we kind of know what our weeks are going to look like. And we can get that autopilot mindset going. And we can just hit the, run, hit the ground running and do it. How many of us, though, during the week go, Hey, Lord, is there something you want to do today? As we're being responsible and faithful to our jobs and to our employers and to the, the provision that the Lord has given us through employment, we can still ask Him, Hey, is there something you want, you want to do today? Is there something you, you want me to do today? Is there someone I need to say something to? And it's taking that moment of, of before we just continue on from a Jericho to an AI throughout our weeks, we say, hold on a second. Lord, thank you for blessing my day. What do you want to do tomorrow? Or what do you want to do tonight? Thanks for giving me a good meeting with my boss. What do you want me to do next? And ask. How long does it take to say, hey, Lord, thank you for that. What do you want me to do next? How long is that? A couple seconds? And then allowing the Spirit to lead and guide us. It's an opportunity to allow our days, allow our weeks and our months to be led of the Lord. Verses 4 and 5. So about 3,000 men went up from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shabarim, and struck them down on the descent. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. So about 3,000 men went up. The spies, they went up and they said, two or 3,000. Joshua, being a wise military leader, he said, all right, let's do the larger number. We'll send 3,000. Makes no difference. They fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai, they struck down 36 men. The 36 men that were killed were 36 more than were killed at Jericho. And that was thought to be a much more difficult city to conquer. Remember, it was a fortified city with double walls, high walls, much more difficult. Though this number was small from a military standpoint, it, meant a, it was a staggering number to Israel. It actually meant that Israel could be defeated in the promised land. 
And the defeat at Ai showed that what mattered was not the strength of the opponent, but it was the help and it was the victory and it was the presence of God. Therefore, the hearts of the people melted and became like water. That should ring true. That should kind of be something familiar to us. As the Israelites were moving to the banks of the Jordan and getting ready to cross, it said that the Canaanites' hearts melted like wax. The Canaanites, the enemy, their hearts melted at the presence and at the thought of the Israelites Israelites coming into the promised land. And now really the Israelites have a little bit of a stub toe moment, a little bit of a trip, and now their hearts are melting. They are now being given over to the fear instead of living for the fearless one. And their panic was completely logical because if God did not fight for them, they had nothing to expect except defeat. They had good reason to be afraid. But again, this chapter is all about contrast. We see even in chapter 2 with Rahab that the, the, hearts, the, the hearts of the men of Jericho, their hearts melted like wax. And now you have the Israelites, their hearts melting. So what, why were the hearts melting? What's going on here? Verses nine, 6 through 9. And then Joshua tore his clothes fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads, and Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To deliver us into the hand of the Amorites? To destroy us? Oh, that we, have been, oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off your name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? I love that at the end of this cry that Joshua is still concerned with the name of the Lord, with the greatness of his name. But Joshua fears that it was unfaithfulness on God's part that had caused the defeat said that he tore his clothes and he covered his face with ashes. And to tear your clothes and to put dust on your head, it, it, it displays mourning. And Joshua is not only mourning the death of the 36 men, but I think more so, he and the elders of Israel, they're mourning the loss of the blessing and the guidance and the presence of God. They're going, God, what happened? Where'd you go? Why'd you leave us? For Joshua and the elders, this defeat was a national calamity. It was a crisis. They did not take this defeat in stride. You know, you win some, you lose some. They know that every single battle matters. And there is always a reason for defeat. It doesn't just happen. There's a reason behind it. They experienced a defeat. But instead of looking to themselves... They said, God, why'd you do this? Why'd you let this happen? Even to the point of saying, if we were just happy being on the other side of the Jordan. Joshua knows well that if God's hand of blessing and guidance isn't there, it would have been better that they just stayed out of the promised land altogether. If God would not deliver them, then everything would be lost. Lost. 
we often are so filled with man's programs and man's power that if God kind of withdrew his blessing, if he withdrew his guidance, sad reality is it might not be missed for some time. If God stopped working in your life today, how long would it be till you noticed? Some of us might be at that moment. It might be that hour. It might be that day. It might be that week. It might be next month. Who knows? But Joshua's concern is still for the, the, the testimony of the Lord, the witness of the Lord. Lord, what are you going to do about your name? This shows Joshua's overriding concern was to glorify God. Our greatest disappointment when we stumble should be that we have possibly caused reproach or caused ill opinion on the name of the Lord. When a sinner sins, okay, they're a sinner, they sin. When a Christian sins, says something else about the Lord. And as believers, as, as men and women who have accepted Jesus, who say that they are living for Him, who have accepted Him as their Redeemer, as their Savior, we should be living in a way that reflects who He is, not who we are or who we were. We should live in a way that shows Him to people, not us. And so I do love the fact that Joshua's concern is about the name of the Lord. Lord, what about your name? What's your testimony going to be like? We dropped the ball. We messed up. But we don't want our sin to impact who you are. That's his question. And that's a great question that we should all be considering as we're living our lives, as we're doing this. Say, okay, if someone were to look at my life, would they see God in my life? Would they see Jesus in my life? Or would they just see me? And if they could only see me, i got to start asking, Lord, how can you be seen more? How can you be what is seen when they look at John, not John? So now we get to the real reason of their defeat. Verses 10 and 11. So the Lord said to Joshua, Dude, get up. I don't think God said dude. But dude, get up. Why are you lying on your face? Joshua, get off the ground. <laughs> Israel has sinned. They have also transgressed my covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have also put it among their own stuff. So Israel has sinned. Not just one man. All have sinned. The good news was that God had not failed the nation. That's great news. God did not fail them. He is the everlasting God. He is the unfailing one. He cannot fail himself. The bad news was that this defeat was due to the sin of Israel. Joshua doesn't need to fear that the problem is with God. It's actually almost more comforting to find out that the problem is with us. If the problem was with God, I'd have a lot more issues. I'd have a lot more questions and concerns. It's a little bit more comforting being like, okay, I messed up again. I failed. Okay. I can, get, I can kind of work with that a little bit more. And this is why God tells Joshua to get up. He doesn't need to beg God to change his heart towards Israel. Joshua needs to change Israel's heart towards God. 
God's provision, His desire, what He wants for us is to live a life of unbroken victory. But He will not make defeat impossible. He will not take away our ability to choose good or evil. His desire is that we always win. But that doesn't mean that He takes away the possibility or the opportunity to lose. You have to choose to lose. If you have to choose to lose or you have to choose to win, you have to make a choice. Achan made a choice. He always makes it possible for us not to sin. But here, Israel sinned, but they didn't have to. He makes it clear don't touch that stuff. You know, it's like, don't, don't touch that light. Okay. Oh, I touched it. Oh, now I sinned. Whose fault is that? It's mine, it's my choice. It's not God's, it's mine. But he gives us opportunity by making the right choice. Israel sinned. God said the entire nation did, not just one man. And it's kind of, it kind of makes you take a step back to think that the whole nation was found guilty that 36 men had died for the sin of one man and his family. We're, again, we're looking at a nation of Israel, a couple million people, they were all found to be guilty in God's eyes because of one person. Paul speaks in very similar terms concerning sin in the church. It's in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. It's regarding sin among the Corinthian church. He says, Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? A small amount of sin accepted and tolerated amongst believers, it can affect the whole group. When there is sin in the camp, when there's sin in the church, it's all of our responsibilities to call it out and to get it out as quick as possible, to not tolerate it. To not be like, it's okay, there's grace. You're right, there is grace. But there's also conviction and repentance. There's forgiveness. There's all these other components. We can't just say, it's okay. I love you anyways, brother. I love you anyways, sister. If you love them, you'll pull them aside and say, this isn't how we're supposed to live. And that's real love. That's genuine, true love. In this sense, in this case, the acceptance and the toleration of the sin is worse than the sin itself. So it has to be dealt with very, very strictly. We should understand exactly what the sin was. Someone in Israel took things that were devoted to God. Now they were devoted to God either by their giving to his tabernacle, giving to him in his presence in his place of meeting, or they were devoted to God by their complete destruction. Either completely destroy it in the name of God because that's what he's asked, or don't destroy it but give it to him. And the sin was someone took something that God said is his. One man stole from God in the same way we steal from him when we don't give him exactly what he directs us to give. What if he wants you to give him 10 minutes of your lunch break to be able to go speak to someone? If you don't give him that time, you're stealing from him because he's asking you to give him something. Maybe it's, you know, it's, it's holiday season. Maybe he's saying, you know what, hey, I want you to give a little extra this week because I need that money to go take care of a missionary fill-in-the-blank. 
Well, that's him asking something from us, which means we have to give it to him because he's asking for it. So the defeat was because of sin, not because of God's removal of blessing or his presence. It was sin was in the camp. Verses 12 and 13. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs from before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither I will be with you anymore, unless you destroy the accursed thing from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the cursed thing from among you. Israel could not fight in God's power and presence unless they walked in obedience to God. Israel was under a covenant or a contract, a promise with God, that promised blessing on their obedience, but also promised a curse on their disobedience. So if they were obedient... Good things, if they are disobedient, bad things. They have become doomed to destruction, it said. It is sobering. It's kind of, it takes your breath away for a moment to realize that a body in sin has no power before their enemies. It's wonderful to realize that once the sin has been dealt with, that God's power can again flow through that life, through that people, through that church. When God deals with a particular area of sin in our lives and we resist His work, His mercy makes us fail in battle. So His mercy will allow failure to happen so that it draws us back to Him. So we come back to Him. We are the most dangerous when we think that we are winning our battles with our own self-reliance. That's the danger zone right there. When we think we're winning because of what we can bring to the table, because of what we can do, that's when it gets dangerous very quick. Verses 14 and 15. In the morning, therefore you shall be brought according to your tribes, and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families, and the family which the Lord takes shall come by households, and the households which the Lord takes shall come man by man, And then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So what are they going to do? These people are going to walk, the the representatives of the tribes are going to walk in front of Joshua, and the Lord is going to speak to Joshua and say, it's that tribe. And then as that tribe is taken, then the representatives of then the families are going to walk. And God's going to tell Joshua, it's that family. And then the men of the individual houses are going to walk in front of Joshua. And God's going to say, there's the guy. Though the identity of the sinning family was unknown to Joshua, it was completely known to God. Secret sin on earth is an open scandal, is an open sore before God. Therefore, we should live our lives with one set of books, not have an off-the-book life. With one kind of life that can be seen by anybody and everybody at all times. Once God dealt with the one sinning individual, blessing would again come back to the entire nation. 
Now you might say that's a harsh thing to do. Well, what's even what's worse, I think, is being outside of the obedience and the will of God. So, verse 16, as common, Joshua rose early in the morning, and he brought Israel by their tribes. And the tribe of Judah was taken. So the representatives walked, and the Lord said, It's Judah. So Joshua said, All right, Judah, it's in your, it's in your tribe. And he brought the clan of Judah, and he took from the family the family of the Zerites. And he brought the family of the Zerites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. This must have been excruciating for Achan sitting there knowing that he had taken something and watching these men and watching these tribes and these houses walk and knowing that he was going to get called out. How much better to simply walk in obedience to God. All this time, I'm sure, Achan certainly remembered exactly what he had taken and how he had wished that he had not taken it. But he and we should remember the regret of sin before we sin, not after. We know when we sin. We don't like what, it's, what, what happens, what it feels like, what we have to experience. Let's try to remember that regret before we sin and not after. Sin does have its pleasure. Taking those things gave Achan a good feeling. How many feelings have you experienced today? How many feelings have you experienced this hour? If we're chasing feelings, we'll never be satisfied. We'll never be fulfilled. Because our feelings are like a roller coaster. It's up and down and around all the time. But the one thing that's consistently constant in this life is the love of Christ that never changes. So we could chase feeling and we'll be all over the map. Or we can chase the one thing that never changes and that's Jesus Christ and his love for us. 19 to 21, getting towards the end now. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to him. And tell me now what you have done and do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels. I coveted them and I took them. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And there they are, hidden in the earth, in the midst of my tent, with the silver underneath it. Even when we sin and try to cover our sin, we can still give glory to God by openly and honestly confessing our sin. And when Achan said, I have sinned, he joined the ranks of seven other men in Scripture who have made that same confession, and some more than once. Others without any sincerity at all. In Exodus 9, Pharaoh, I have sinned. Balaam in Numbers 22. King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 26. 
David in 2 Samuel 12, 2 Samuel 24, Psalm 51. Shimei, 2 Samuel 19. Judas, Matthew 27. And the prodigal son, Luke 15. And the other men that have confessed, I have sinned. Some more than once, some with no sincerity at all. Now measured against the lives of these 36 men, this silver, this gold, and this garment, they're pretty insignificant. And it wasn't just the lives of those 36 men, it was the welfare of the entire nation. Now think of how Achan could have rationalized his sin. No one's going to know. These things won't be missed. Think of how admired I'm going to be in this, in this garment. I'm not hurting anyone. I deserve this. The excuses could go on. God, help us to feel terrible about our sin before we do it. In the last verses, 22 to 26. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel took with him, took with him and all of Israel with him, took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons and daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had, and brought them to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will now trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, and there to this day. So the Lord turned from his fierce, his, so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Now, there was a law in Israel that prohibited innocent family members from being judged for the sins of the relatives. So Achan's family must have been guilty of assisting him somehow in his sin. Now, my assumption or my thought is, if he's bringing all these things, these spoils of war, into the family tent and is hiding them, they're going to know something's going on. Either they're aware of what's happening, or they probably they might have helped him. Who knows? But there was, there was a, a guilt associated and attached to the family. His household was judged the same way Israel would deal with a Jewish city that had turned to idols. Achan and his family had turned from the true and living God and had given their hearts to that which God said was his, was accursed. Silver, gold, and an expensive garment. It wasn't worth it. And appropriately, the Israelites named that place the Valley of Trouble. Or, as the NIV says, the valley of disaster. So the Lord turned from his fierceness. Even this kind of sin, when it is dealt with, can be a springboard to victory once again. Now Israel was again in position to walk in the power and the guidance of God after they were conquered again by God. But this kind of victory only comes after death. We need to die to such sins to know that those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. What's the flesh? The flesh is that sin nature, that desire to live contrary or against God that is within us all. We have to deny that and all of its passions and desires 
And the power and the victory of Jesus' resurrection, when he rose from the dead, the power that is in that resurrected life and the victory that's in that resurrected life, we are told in the Bible that those are ours. And that every day we must crucify, we must put to death, we must deny our self. Even the valley of trouble can become a doorway of hope. Now, yeah, this chapter can be looked at and go, it's all about hidden sin. It's all about sin in the camp. I'm not coming and saying there's sin in the camp. I'm not. But what I am saying, what I am going to look at is say, what's the domino effect of your life? I got four kids at home. I got a wife at home. So what is my life doing that could potentially knock them over? I have friends. I'm part of a church. I'm involved in ministry. Is my life set up right now that if it gets knocked over, that it's going to knock so many other people down? What is the effect of your life right now? Are you living a life that denies the fleshly desires of the sinful nature? Or are you living a life that gives in to those things? Talked about it a couple weeks ago, Laodicea, having just enough of the world in you to be comfortable but not to be a zealous Christian and have just enough Jesus in you to be considered a Christian. This chapter is not, I don't want to make the point of it about hidden sin. I want to look at the the impact of the lives around you. What impact are you having with your friends, your family, your church, your ministry, your work? I think I've said this quote before when I taught on uh, Gideon. D.L. Moody said it. Out of 100 men, 99 will read the man and one will read the Bible. If people are reading your life, what are they reading? I pray that they're reading and they're seeing the Lord and not just you. Well, let's pray. Father God, we 